does this really work? Does the Fed's affecting interest rates actually work? Well, yes, broadly speaking, it does. You know, they've gotten better and better, in fact, at, at managing recessions, at managing the economy over time, I'll argue. And I know there are a lot of critics who would disagree with me, but uh, recessions have gotten shorter and, and we'd, we've gotten better as a uh, just world at regulating finance. But... All right, welcome to a special surviving but not thriving edition of The Early Advantage, where I've got a headache, I'm in my pajamas, but I'm still here, and I'm ready to talk about the Federal Reserve, how and why it raises interest rates. Well, first of all, interest rates are a gas pedal or a brake pedal on an economy. This is true for any central bank, including the Federal Reserve. Um, the idea, basic idea, is to set a baseline rate perhaps between the central bank and some sort of key institutional players. And that baseline rate, rate then trickles up and out into the broader economy. In the U.S., for example, the prime rate is typically the next stop. The prime rate is the rate that banks charge their very best, very most creditworthy customers. From there, rates go up into auto rates, credit card rates, uh, mortgage rates, all kinds of things. So that's the, the basic idea of adjusting interest rates. Now, if you read kind of a, a basic kind of level one article, I'll say, um, you will see that the Federal Reserve changes what's called the federal funds rate when it actually sets interest rates. And it sets a target range, not an exact number. The federal funds rate is the rate that banks who are members of the Federal Reserve, typically the big banks in the U.S., charge each other on overnight loans to top up their balances to meet the required minimums. Now, if you heard what I just said, you might shift into level two thinking, which is to say something like, wait a minute, if the banks are charging each other that rate, how, why is the Fed setting it? And, and this was true thinking for a long, long time. And even I've sort of uh, broadcast this thinking also, that the, the Fed just sort of makes suggestions and these banks have to go along with it because the Fed has powers that they don't have. And the Fed is kind of like the godfather, it makes an offer they can't refuse. This was basically true until late 2008. Uh, it's still a little bit true now, but it's sort of like mostly untrue now because we're back to level three thinking all over again, which is the Federal Reserve actually, because after 2008, the end of 2008, the Fed pays interest on reserve balances now. And after that started, you see a big growth in the chart of excess reserve balances uh, on, at the Fed, just being kept at the Fed, because those banks are making money on those extra reserves. And if they're making money on those extra reserves already, and, and by the way, after some back and forth, the Fed is now paying out basically something near the upper end of the Fed funds target interest rate range uh, as the interest rate payment on those excess reserves those banks with those excess reserves are not as motivated to, to share them or to lend to other banks because they're already happily making money. So the Fed has essentially come in and done the job uh, for these banks that they were doing uh, themselves prior to, to the Fed's ability to pay interest on, on reserve balances. Um, there is a, a bonus, some bonus firepower in the form of reverse repurchase agreements. So this uh, interest rate on reserves affects only the banks that literally are, have reserves on deposit with the Fed, which is not all banks and it's certainly not all financial participants. But the Fed does something called reverse repos, which affect uh, other banks that may be not, not members of the Fed or sometimes money market funds, uh, different institutional players, can, I think mutual funds, different institutional participants, can, not like me, but you know, big fish can participate in these reverse repos. A reverse repo is basically where the Fed uh, sells a security to 
uh, one of these institutional investors typically overnight and then buys it back at a little bit higher price the next day. And that little bit higher price, that delta, is essentially the interest rate. And so the Fed can use this as a way to bring up the floor of interest rates if it thinks they're still dropping too low and it thinks that the reserve rate, uh, the, the Fed funds rate, is not enough firepower. It can kind of have a broader market impact by being active in the reverse repo market. This is t one type of open market operations, which the Fed broadly uses, you know, buying and selling securities. This is a very short-term type. Sometimes the Fed just buys stuff and sits on it for a long time also. That's, that's not a reverse repo or repo. Um, by the way, repo versus a reverse repo, don't get too mixed up in that. Sometimes one entity can can sell an asset and then buy it back the next day. Like for this person, it's a, that would be the reverse repo. Uh, if you're the one buying it and then selling it back the next day, then it's a repo. Um, it's just two sides of the same coin. It sounds confusing, but the person or the entity, I should say, providing the cash is the lender. Whoever provides the cash is the lender in a repo transaction. And the basic idea is these are government securities. They're super safe. They're, they're either overnight or usually very short term uh, in, in duration. So it's uh, not much time for bad stuff to happen. The safest possible securities, they're collateralized. Um, it, it's almost like a no-risk loan. So it's a very almost like a pure proxy for a risk-free rate in an overnight sense. And that's why, uh, and it's easy to find participants. That's why the Fed chooses this method. But let's step back and ask, does this really work? Does the Fed's affecting interest rates actually work? Well, yes, broadly speaking, it does. You know, they've gotten better and better, in fact, at, at managing recessions, at managing the economy over time, I'll argue. And I know there are a lot of critics who would disagree with me, but uh, recessions have gotten shorter and, and we'd, we've gotten better as a uh, just world at regulating finance. But interest rates affect the demand side of the equation. And so if inflation is high and inflation is defined as rising prices, I'll get to more of that in a second, but interest rates uh, can reduce the demand side, which can reduce inflation. Like in the early 1980s in the U.S., Paul Volcker jacked rates way up to kill inflation that had gotten really high. I mean, people were buying houses at 14, 15% interest rates. Uh, there's another school of thought, though. Uh, and if we disambiguate inflation, you could say, well, there's some kind of like Supply-side inflation, for example, because of an oil shock or a supply chain disruption, there's also inflation caused by just quantity of money. And for the purists, the, the pure financial theory people, they think that's the more insidious form of inflation because it's not as easily quelled by jacking up interest rates. Now, on the other side, you could say, well, going back to, let's say, the, the supply-side inflation, you might not necessarily fight that problem best with interest rates. There's an argument that in the 1980s, uh, it wasn't just Paul Volcker, who was chairman of the Federal Reserve then, Paul Volcker's move to jack up rates, it was also a lot of the supply side uh, reforms that Ronald Reagan introduced, like rolling back the uh, uh, Carter windfall uh, oil profits tax, 1.70% of US oil company profits above a certain number were taxed. That's a lot of money. Uh, and, and that reduces demand, that reduces uh, oil or supply, excuse me, it reduces the oil company's incentive to drill wells, to produce oil. And, you know, we've got to look overseas for oil in that case. But the point is supply side reform, whether it's, you know, reduction in tax, whether it's helping, you know, people more easily get into the workforce. Uh, there are many ways to do it, but 
that is arguably another way to stop inflation if the inflation is driven by things that would be affected by those supply side things. So uh, in this case, at the time of filming, you know, we got a lot of inflation because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and maybe some because of China's uh, COVID lockdowns. Uh, those are both supply-oriented, supply-side inflation reasons. So it's questionable, you know, among many economists, whether rising interest rates will really effectively help this inflation. Um, because these supply things tend to be resolved uh, in different ways. Uh, then again, the other logic or piece of logic is that there's so much money now circulating in the economy that money was kind of moving around slowly before, just going into asset prices, basically inflating assets. But once the velocity of that money increases and it starts to move around more, and maybe that's happening now, we're going to have that true real inflation that people really fear. And in that case, who knows what the Federal Reserve or any government entity is going to do. Uh, let me know if this was helpful, if you have any further questions, or if you have other things you'd like me to talk about. You can drop a note in the comments or uh, drop me an email, depending on how you're watching this. And thanks for watching. Hey there, I'm Brian Christopher. We live in a different world today. The end of the flow of Russian gas to Germany is a possibility. At one point last week, no gas was flowing through Russia's Nord Stream 1 pipeline. As I record this, the pipeline's at about 40% of capacity, meaning we're not out of the woods yet. We don't know how much will be flowing this winter. As such, it makes sense for Germans and most of Europe to at least consider how to prepare. Think about it as hedging your risk. The purpose of today's session is to consider some options. Wood stoves and firewood are in demand in Germany. This makes sense in the current landscape. Now, there's some question about the climate benefits of doing this. Years ago, the Euro European Commission directed member countries to generate 20% of their energy from renewable sources by 2020. This includes the burning of biomass. But some in the know say burning wood pellets releases more CO2 than burning coal. That said, for purposes of this presentation, I'm assuming Europeans have to get their power from somewhere, and they will. As investors, what can we do about it? Here's one idea. Wood pellets are a form of biomass. They can be used instead of charcoal, oil, or gas in heating, cooking, boiler, and power plants. They can also be used in wood stoves. If wood stoves are in demand, then the, then the materials that power them will be as well. I ran a Bloomberg screen searching for the two words wood pellets in the description of every public company. There were three results. Before I discuss them, I want to let you know my purpose with the lists I've been presenting is not to provide all the names that could benefit from a particular theme. It's to get the idea percolating in your head should you care for it to be there. If you don't, no worries. We'll have another idea next week. The fact that there are only three names on this list doesn't mean there aren't other public companies in the wood pellet business. If this is an idea of interest, one can certainly search for more. That said, with respect to this list, let's talk a bit about the names from smallest to largest. Asia, Biomass, PCL, is based in Bangkok and serves customers in Asia. That's not our focus here. 
Cogra 48, ticker ALCOG in Paris, has an amazing chart. Shares have been in an uptrend since the COVID bottom, and they've gone meteoric since mid-June. You can see how they took a recent blip down when it was confirmed gas would flow again on Russia's Nord Stream 1 pipeline. To be clear, this is a small stock. Its U.S. dollar market cap is only $50 million, but it may be a good one to watch on a pullback. And Viva Partners, ticker EVA, is a $4 billion U.S. company. It's the world's largest producer of wood pellets. Its stock price hasn't been as strong as Cogra 48's, but it is in an uptrend since early July. EVA also pays a 5.7% dividend yield as I record this. I encourage you to look into these two names. Wood pellets aren't sexy, but as things look today, we may be burning more of them in the near term. Listen, you guys, investing doesn't have to be hard. And I assure you there's nothing common about common sense. Clearly, I'm not the first to this idea. The strength of Cobra 48 stock price shows us that. But absent a ceasefire in the Ukraine, I would expect the bullishness toward non-traditional ideas like this one isn't done yet. Again, it's up to you and your portfolio as to what, if anything, you want to do about it as an investor. There are other angles to play this topic. If you enjoyed this one, please let us know and we'll pursue them. FYI, I generated this list using Bloomberg, but there are other screeners out there as well. For example, Finviz, TradingView, Zacks, Yahoo Finance, among others. Your online broker likely offers one as well. These are not official investment recommendations. In fact, I don't know if any of these ideas will officially become recommendations in my service, which is called Follow the Money. The reason I started doing this in the first place, though, is because I wanted to provide you with a blueprint for thinking about investing to show you how you can think about generating a wish list. Simply observing the goings-on around you can be more than enough to make money. Thank you.